Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. The culture of mainstream American childhood is vastly different from the culture of Orthodox Jewish childhood, which is itself a rich and varied landscape of texts, music, toys, and more, with nuances with nuanced shadings from one sect of Orthodox Judaism to the next. In Artifacts of Orthodox Jewish Childhoods, Personal and Critical Essays, published by Benny Hood Press in 2022, Danny Bernstein has collected a treasury of essays examining the artifacts of Orthodox Jewish childhood and how they influence a child's development, developing view of the wider world and their inner world. Danny Bernstein holds a PhD in English and a certificate in medieval studies from the City University of New York Graduate Center and teaches college composition, medieval literature, and children's and young adult literature at Lehman College of the City University of New York. Uh, We're pleased to also be joined by several of the contributors to this book, uh, including Goldie Gross, Yehudis Keller, Hannah Leibowitz, and Miriam Moster. Goldie Gross earned a bachelor's degree in art and business from Baruch College and earned a master's degree in the the history of art and archaeology at the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. Yehudis Keller earned a, a bachelor's degree in psychology and fine arts from Brooklyn College and will be pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology at Case Western Reserve University in the fall. Uh, Hannah Leibovitz is an assistant professor of public affairs at the University of Texas, Arlington, and Miriam Moster is a doctoral student in sociology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm so glad uh, their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, one and all. Hi, glad to be here. So to get started, could you each tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to edit or contribute to this volume? Goldie, why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, So I come from an Orthodox background. I grew up Chabad. um, And so when I saw the Orthodox... Chabad Labavitch is an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community uh, headquartered in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Yes. This is true. Um, And so when I saw the title of the book in the call for papers, um, Orthodox Jewish Childhoods, like, oh, this, uh, I had one of those. (laughs) Um, And as uh, then I was in school, I've studied art history. Um, I thought it would be a great, I thought contributing to the book would be a great way to combine my interest in visual culture um, with my background and my course of studies. Very, very nice. Dani, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, so, like most of the others here, I did grow up Orthodox. Um, I, For my dissertation, for my PhD, I wrote about um, ultra-Orthodox Jewish children's literature. Um, and I am housed in the English department, so I was focused on children's literature. But I also wanted to incorporate a lot more than just the literature um, in my discussion and analysis of this. I I also wanted to talk about lots of the music tapes and story tapes and various other cultural artifacts that form a whole part of Orthodox childhood. Um, So this book was born out of that desire to include a lot more than just the texts. And it really does. Uh, And we'll we'll get into some of that uh, shortly. Okay, Hannah, 
How about you? Hi. So I, too, uh, had an Orthodox Jewish childhood. I grew up in a home that uh, was ultra-Orthodox from a more Lithuanian background, um, what we might call yeshivish, but was completely educated within the Chabad system, the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Chabad system. So I, I sort of had a dual perspective on my Orthodox childhood or ultra-Orthodox childhood. But I did not enter this from the Jewish studies space. Uh, rather, I am a qualitative social scientist and am very interested in autoethnography as a method for qualitative research. So I really came into this as an autoethnographer and considering the bounds of that qualitative research method. Right. And that certainly does uh, bring uh, a different uh, lens to your contribution, which we'll we'll get into uh, shortly as well. Um, okay, Miriam, how about you? I also grew up in a Haredi community. I'd call it a moderate Haredi community. In and Haredi is ultra-Orthodox? Yes, ultra-Orthodox. So mine was a more moderate one. Um, and today I'm doing my PhD where I also study the Haredi community. My research focus is on parents who leave the Haredi community and are going through divorces. So that's also a part of my interest in this subject as well. But the piece for the book focused more on my own childhood and navigating those kinds of experiences. Great. Well, thank you all for that. Um, it helps to kind of set the stage and give listeners a sense of who um, all of our guests are. Um, and now, yes, Yehudis, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I was raised also in the ultra-Orthodox community of Chabad Labavitch in Crown Heights. Um, Goldie and I are childhood classmates and friends to this day. Um, and I am about to, to start my PhD in clinical psychology where I'll be focusing on the mental health of leaving religion. Um, so Goldie did bring me onto this project to provide more of the psychological perspectives to her art history perspectives. Um, and that was was really interesting because I was at that time working on a literature review of eating disorders and within ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. And uh, one of the factors that are discussed there are how modesty affects disordered eating and that kind of pathology, which is related to our chapter. Right. Oh, thank you for that. Definitely wetting our appetite thinking about about your chapter. So, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to that soon. But let's uh, get a kind of um, a broad perspective to to set the stage for our discussion. I want to go to Dania, who did a a, a masterful job um, editing and and putting together this volume. Could you tell us, Dania, what is so important to understand Orthodox Jewish childhood culture? Um, that's a great question. And to start with just more broadly, um, understanding childhood culture in general, childhood is a really formative part of our lives. Um, and so understanding how artifacts of our childhood affect us and affect the way we think um, is really important in understanding who the adults become. Um, and specifically for Orthodox childhoods, because most Orthodox childhoods are in a more closed community than um, their American counterparts, the differences are highlighted. And every community is going to have different 
artifacts that they give to their children, whether it's from religion or, you know, political viewpoint or cultural or ethnic, they're going to have different artifacts. But for children who are growing up in a more closed community, like the Orthodox communities, and there are multiple Orthodox communities, as you said, there are nuanced differences among them. Um, But the artifacts that the children have there really affect who they become as adults, not all in the same way, but they do affect that. Um, And it's important to understand who the Orthodox adults of today are. So looking back at the childhoods, whether it's medieval childhood, as one of the uh, essays talks about, or, you know, our generation's childhood, um, it's all important to understanding how various Orthodox communities exist within America and the wider world today. Right. And is there a Jewish view of childhood and the status of children in society? There are multiple. (laughs) (laughs) So childhood as a concept and childhood studies, there is a field of childhood studies. Um, the, The foundation of that field is that childhood is a construction. Childhood is a a social construction. There is no biological childhood. There is no inherent childhood. It really all depends on how each culture, each society of each era and each region um, defines childhood, whether that includes infancy and or adolescence, um, whether those infancy and adolescence are even categories, uh, whether childhood is just one big thing, whether childhood extends until the age of 21. Um, so those age boundaries vary um, across all societies and all cultures. The thing is that also what a child is varies across cultures and, and, and societies as well. So the, the, the concept of the child that is most prevalent um, in kind of American society now is the romantic child, where uh, it's something that developed during the romantic period, where the child is innocent and pure, um, and must be protected. And, you know, eventually thinking of William Blake, the romantic poet, Songs of Innocence and Experience, where the child is first innocent, then experiences the world and becomes corrupt. There are other concepts of the child, like the sinful child, which is the complete opposite. Not that the child is innocent and pure, but the child is sinful and needs to be disciplined. So all of these are, are ideas of childhood that exist in the world. The idea of the Jewish child varies a lot as well. It's not just a single um, idea of a child. It's, uh, it, it varies by community, it varies by time period, and it varies by what the purpose is, by what's being thought of. So there are ideas of the Jewish child as completely pure, right? Similar to the romantic child. Um, And this appears, as I say in the introduction of the book, it it appears in songs like um, It's Going to Be the Little Kinderlach. And Kinderlach is children. It's going to be the little children who make Mashiach come, who make the Messiah come. This is an idea that the Torah learning of little children um, will bring the redemption because of the purity and the innocence of the child. Then at the same time, there's also an idea that Um, you know, at the bar mitzvah of of a boy, when a boy turns 13 and becomes a a legal Jewish adult, the father says, Baruch Shepetrani, right? Thank God that I am redeemed from this uh, burden, because according to that concept, uh, the child 
does not is is culp is not culpable for his own actions, but his father is culpable for his actions, and the child is sinful. So the father has been absorbing all of the sins of the child. So this idea of are they pure? Are they sinful? Are they do they need discipline? Do they need love? That varies a lot, and it doesn't vary only by time. It varies. All of these ideas exist simultaneously. Right, right. Um, and you, we sort of touched on this before, but uh, people who are familiar um, with the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox uh, um, Jewish communities know that there are a lot of subdivisions or subgroups within this uh, kind of a broad framework. Um, when it comes to um, childhood cultures, is there one unified Orthodox or even ultra-Orthodox Jewish childhood culture? Um, still no, (laughs) still no. Um, there are, so there are multiple subdivisions within them. One of the biggest ones in the book is between Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox and modern Orthodox, um, where you can divide that up into three separate, um, categories. And within each one, again, there are multiple subdivisions. The biggest one in Hasidic is between Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic and non Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic. So, like Satmar, they they're both Hasidic, but they have very different views of the world. Um, within Ultra Orthodoxy, there's also lots of different uh, subdivisions, and again, within Modern Orthodox. But for example, just going with that, um, in it's more prevalent in Hasidic communities for the child to be seen as or rebuilding after the Holocaust. And that's not as common in um, ultra-Orthodox and modern Orthodox communities. It is in ultra-Orthodox communities, a little bit of the Hasidic um, influence of that idea of the child as the rebuilding after the Holocaust that does seep in. It's not as common in modern Orthodox communities. So that idea in itself, it really, it defines how children are treated, right? If children are, you know, kind of the, quote, revenge on Hitler, and it's you carry on all the hopes and dreams of all of those who were killed in the Holocaust, that really influences how children are treated. Um, if children are seen as the... Uh, in What's, what's very common in some ultra-Orthodox communities, children are seen as the next generation of Torah scholars and mothers of future generations, and this kind of goes across all Jewish communities. Again, children are going to be raised that way, and that speaks to the gender difference in how children are raised. Um, so there's no one idea, but the idea of children as the future, if we could boil it down to one thing, the idea of children as the future, um, which is common across America in general, um, but it is really, really apparent in Orthodox communities. Right. And then when we think about the childhood culture, not just the um, ideology or ideas about childhood or children, but the actual culture, the material culture that you are interested in exploring in, in, in the book, is there a unified culture that all the um, children in Orthodox Jewish communities or ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities are participating in? Or is that, even that material culture, kind of subdivided along um, communal lines? Yeah. 
It, it is definitely subdivided. Um, one of the essays really uh, highlights that, uh, Frida Wiesel's essay on the Hasidic biblical coloring books, um, which are in Yiddish, those really belong to a Hasidic community and they, they don't really go beyond that. Um, this goes back to the, you know, when we were thinking about the, the concept of the book and what we would do with this. I was talking to our publisher, uh, Larry Yudelson um, of Ben Yehuda Press, I, I mean, my work focuses on Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. Um, I, when I started working on my dissertation, I made the conscious decision not to include Yiddish language, te- Yiddish language texts, um, so not to include Hasidic texts. I was including Lubavitch texts because they are in English, um, and that's one of the differences between Lubavitch and, and other Hasidic sects. Um, but when we were you know, conceiving of this book, to be honest, we weren't sure that we would get enough essays just on Haredi communities, so we expanded it to Hasidic and modern Orthodox as well. While I was editing this, there was a moment where I was thinking about dividing up the, the sections as Hasidic, modern Orthodox, and, and ultra-Orthodox. Ultimately, I realized that that's not actually very productive um, because there's a lot of overlap. The terminology you know, varies. Um, people who call one thing modern Orthodox will call something else ultra-Orthodox and other people will see it differently um, because it's not, there's not a strict dividing line. So there is a lot of overlap. Um, but at the same time, each segment does experience certain artifacts that are unique to them. Um, for example, the, uh, for another example, right, Hannah will talk about the journeys CDs, the, the Journeys music CDs, um, those are, you know, they, they feel like a universal Orthodox experience to those of our generation. But in fact, one of the things that Frida said, Frida Wiesel, uh, when she was talking about, you know, her experience as growing up in, in a, a really strict Hasidic community, is that that was not part of her childhood because those lyrics were in English. So there's a lot of overlap, but there's also really um, interesting divides between the artifacts that cross boundaries. Right, right. I think it is interesting that even, like you said, something like um, the Journeys uh, music collection or other, um, I don't know if there's a um, uh, a contribution about schlock rock, which is a, another sort of, I guess, kind of modern Orthodox, um, you know, Jewish take on popular music. Well, as someone who grew up in the Lubavitch Hasidic community, those uh, 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 songs were considered Gaish, were considered non-Jewish. In other words, they were treif. They were not kosher enough for consumption in our community, even though they were, uh, you know, put uh, produced and sung by an Orthodox Jewish uh, man, and they were, you know, intentionally designed to appeal to the Orthodox Jewish community. They weren't Orthodox enough, yes. and so so that plays a role in in, in these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, schlock rock to, for us was completely not okay. Um, uh, country Yassi was kind of on the border. Th- there is an essay in this book about Country Yassi. Country Yassi and schlock rock do similar things where they are parodying um, popular American songs. Um, but yeah, both of those were, were kind of not okay. Country Yassi was a little more okay because he used more Yiddish, I think. That's kind of, I think, the thing. But then there was also a lot about there was a, a new group that, that formed the Hevra, um, which was for Orthodox men. And they were not allowed to us either because they used techno. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of um, 
things in terms of what is Jewish enough, what is not Jewish enough, um, just because it was produced by uh, Orthodox Jews did not necessarily mean that each community thought it was okay. Um, so things like black hatitude, a lot of people during the you know, over the course of, of, of editing this book and, and, you know, talking about the book and, and just spreading word of it, people would mention Black Hattitude. And to me, that was a rebel group. Black Hattitude and, and Blue Fringe, these were all rebel groups. You listened to those if you were rebellious. But for other people, it was just a normal part of childhood. So, yeah, lots of variation in that. Yeah, and I think it might just uh, be interesting to think about the analogy between the consumption of popular you know, Jewish culture and the consumption of food. And just like with kashrut, with the laws related to to food consumption, you know, many of these uh, 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 subdivisions within the Orthodox community have their own standards about what's kosher enough for their community members to eat. And I think there's a similar kind of uh, 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 boundary um, uh, maintenance process going on when it comes to uh, the consumption of culture, where yeah. even if things are designed for the Orthodox Jewish community, they may not be considered kosher enough for particular communities. Um, all right, just to 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 um, get a few more points in here before we go to some of the contributors, I'm um, wondering if you could give us a sense, Danny, of the range of the pieces in the book. Obviously, there's a lot to um, uh, um, Orthodox Jewish childhood culture. Could you give us a sense of just how broad the the essays in the book are? Yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned, the if if we're thinking on it, uh, if we're thinking about it on a scale from right to left, which is hard to really do because again, there's a lot of variation in how people think of themselves on that scale. Um, but a religious for, scale. On a sorry. A religious scale of more liberal versus more uh, conservative or more uh, strictly orthodox. Yes, uh, this has nothing to do with politics. This is this is strictly um, in terms of levels of religiosity, which or levels of of, of uh, fundamental religion in a sense, um, which is really hard to qualify. Um, Sociologists do this. Uh, social scientists and anthropologists do this. Um, um, and I, I point you to their work um, to find out more about that. But sort of moreover to the uh, extremist side, we have uh, Frieda Wiesel's essay on the Hasidic Yiddish biblical coloring books. And then way over on the you know far end of modern orthodoxy, there's um, uh, Jessica Russick Hoffman's essay on um, on on attending a modern Orthodox summer camp. Um, now she, the reason I kind of think about that all the way over on the other end is because she was coming from a quote, out of town modern Orthodox community. She was from Seattle um, and in summer camp was encountering uh, kids from, from the New York metropolitan area, which is much more kind of embedded in the modern Orthodox culture. So that essay is really talking about her kind of grappling with that culture of as an outsider. Um, there are other essays uh, dealing with modern Orthodoxy. There's the, the heresy uh, zine, or zine um, which is uh, a, a few girls growing up in, uh, in Detroit, um, Michigan, created a zine in their high school, in their Akiva high school. So that's a 
uh, a modern Orthodox experience. There's also someone else, uh, Dvor Steinmetz, who has an essay on uh, her experience in a modern Orthodox school and the moment when she as a girl was separated from the boys um, and, and was not allowed to learn Talmud or was allowed to unofficially um, in a really, I, I love that essay. It's really great. Um, so the range is really, really wide. But again, in between all of that, all of the things that are discussed in between, some of them, even though the the kind of the positionality of the author might be ultra-Orthodox or modern Orthodox, some of them kind of overlap. So there's, a, on the Hasidic end, there's also a number of, of essays from Chabad Lubavitch people, right, including some of the people here today. Um, and there's, so that's kind of in there as well, but some of those experience, even though they're Hasidic, they also overlap with the just Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. So there's a lot of overlap in between them, but it really is a really big um, expanse that we cover. All right, so uh, Dana, you were talking about, um, you were talking about the some of the, the key themes that emerge uh, from the essays in the book. Uh, yeah, so one of the big themes that emerged was music and songs. Um, and so that kind of got its own section in the book. The middle section of the book is music and songs, and that um, combines from both of the other sections, which are more academic-focused and more personal essays. Um, but that music and songs are just a really strong part of emotional religiosity, so it kind of makes sense that that would appear there. Um, one of the other big themes was uh, gender. Um, and this came mostly from uh, women who were writing, um, which kind of makes sense uh, in general. Uh, women tend to notice gender more um, because it's kind of outside of the norm of, of uh, patriarchal society. And that goes for all of America, but also Orthodox communities. Um, that's, I think those were the two main themes that came up. There was also a lot of um, grappling going on. So while a lot of these essays, many of these essays are um, unambiguously embracing and, and celebrating some of these artifacts, there's really a lot of, of grappling with what did these artifacts mean to me as a child or what did they mean to children if it wasn't necessarily a personal thing? Um, what do these artifacts mean to me now? Um, and I think that one, one of the things the authors really did well, and we went through multiple rounds of revision, was um, to really dig into that, not only on a personal level, but also on a critical academic level. Um, and uh, all of us here today are academics, um, but not everyone who was writing for the book is an academic. Um, and I wanted to have that because I wanted not to shut out any voices. Not everyone who uh, is who has something to say is necessarily an academic. Um, so what we worked with, I worked with uh, all of the authors and really, um, they really put in a lot of work to kind of dig it down into that and think about, well, what do these, what do these artifacts mean to me? What do they mean to children more generally? All right. Well, thank you for all that. Um, so now we're going to shift to Goldie and Yehudis and talk about their contribution. And um, your article uh, focuses on the issue of SNEAS. What exactly is SNEAS? And just how all-encompassing a concept 
is Sneas in the life of Orthodox Jewish girls and women? And why don't we start with uh, Goldie? Sure. Um, so Tznius, um translates to modesty, and it refers not only to dress, but also to attitude, behavior, thoughts, um, and actions. And so it is a very important aspect um, of a girl's life. I think also uh, a boy's life to a lesser extent, but, but it's, the emphasis is placed very strongly um, on girls and women to um, dress and behave in a manner that um, befits a Jewish woman um, to have a sort of exneous attitude and demeanor. What is a Tznius attitude? What what would that be like? That's a great question. I think just somebody who's maybe uh, who conforms to uh, standard gender roles. Um, a woman who isn't too loud, who doesn't, um, you know, doesn't uh, take up more space than she's meant to in traditional thought. I see. Um, okay, we're going to shift to uh, to Hudis. Um, uh, your um, uh, article, your chapter, um, focuses on Tznius diagrams. What are Tznius diagrams, and how widespread a phenomena are they in Orthodox Judaism today? Sure. So Tznius diagrams are sort of um, pictures of, of how to dress in a Tznius manner. They're drawn usually and scanned. Um, there's some that are more professionally illustrated, um, and... Um, so they sort of they 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 sort of depict somebody either dressing sneezly or not sneezly, and they refer usually to to what has to be done. Um, and if the person illustrated is not sneezly, it says this is like not what you're meant to do. And if somebody is more modest, like this is how you're meant to dress. Um, and they are pretty widespread. They're given out in schools. Um, I received um, them growing up. I remember very memorably in tenth grade um, receiving from a certain teacher. Um, I've heard you could find them in dressing rooms um, in stores that sell modest clothing for women. Um, and the internet has a plethora of them uh, taken from various sources. And could you give our listeners a sense of what kinds of issues the Tznius diagrams are trying to instruct the girls or women about? Like what are some of the problems or, 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 or uh, clothing concerns that the girls and women are, are, are being um, instructed to, to be conscious of? Sure. There's, um, there's one that's very memorable. Um, it's a woman walking up the step um, in, on, onto a bus and it's showing her like stepping to the side um, with one leg on the bus step and one leg on the ground. And it's illustrating that her slit in the back of her skirt is closed um, and that her skirt is long enough that her knee is not shown. Um, but it's sort of implying that if your skirt's a little too short, if you have a slit in the back, this this movement you would do to get onto a bus would become immodest. So just to help listeners understand this, the idea is that that in general, according to Orthodox Jewish uh, law and custom, uh, women's uh, the women are only supposed to wear skirts or dresses, not pants. And when they're wearing these skirts or dresses, they're they're supposed to cover their knees, right? And, yes. But what you're saying is not only is it important that the knees are covered when the woman is standing or sitting, but even for the very brief moment that the woman is involved in a, 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 you know, a more... Um, 
an aggressive activity like boarding a bus, there is the possibility that the knee will suddenly become uncovered and that this would be considered a big problem. Yes. And I guess um, to further elaborate, um, the two other major areas are the elbows that have to be covered and the collarbones. And most of the illustrations are sort of geared towards um, proper items of dress that would cover your knees, elbows, and collarbone. Right, right. Okay. And now, um, Yehudis, you're, wi- you're, you're with us? I am with you. Terrific, terrific. So um, we were just talking about your article, and um, one, one, one question I had was that ultra-Orthodox publications, um, out of a concern for modesty, tend to avoid publishing pictures of women. That the, the very uh, just publishing the, the, a picture of a woman's face and body uh, is often considered uh, immodest uh, for many Orthodox publications. Uh, so how do how detailed are the diagrams of women that you are discussing in your chapter? Uh, how detailed are these diagrams? How do they deal with the fact that they're trying to represent women? And at the same time, there's a problem with publishing a picture of a woman. Yeah, so uh, these illustrations are done very cleverly, cleverly in the sense where they do have to depict the actual rule. So let's say if they're talking about a collarbone and how that is to be covered correctly, um, they will make sure that there's a figure that has a neck and shoulders, but not much more than that is necessary. So in order to avoid that problem of distraction or showing women in improper ways, only what's necessary is included in these diagrams. You'll see in some of these diagrams, you'll see even a more realistic one where the part of a body where a chest is supposed to be, you'll see it's completely flat um, because that would be considered inappropriate. Right, so they're they're like uh, profoundly minimalist in terms of of the, the, the physical representation of women and their bodies. Yeah, that would be right. a nice way to say it. <laughs> okay. And uh, Goldie, I'm wondering, what is the relationship between the push for these SNEAS diagrams in books or other um, uh, published materials for Orthodox girls and the general perception among male rabbis? Because in the Orthodox world, uh, or, or certainly the ultra-Orthodox world, all the rabbis are male. Uh, so what is the relationship between these diagrams and the perception among male rabbis of the intellectual capacity of women? Um, so the TNIS, the booklets and pamphlets containing the TNIS diagrams are often written by men. And this contrasts with sort of the typical classroom instruction, which is usually a female teacher teaching um, TNIS to female students. So um, it's men writing these pamphlets. And in the introductions, you'll find them saying things like, women are so busy, so we simplified it for them. Um, or even after um, holding uh, shiurim, which are classes about this, um, it seems that women still can't do it properly. So here's some drawings. And I think that this sort of negates the fact that maybe women don't want always to be so tzniyas. Um And maybe, you know, I think, I think it sort of um, negates half the population's intelligence in a very um, pedantic and uh, rude, frankly, way. 
Right, right. And um, you heard this. I'm wondering what message do you think these SNES diagrams send to girls and women about their bodies and their responsibility for male sin? Yeah, so um, one would think that males have an equal, if not greater, responsibility to guard um, their sexual thoughts and behaviors that involve women. Um, however, since the responsibility is put on women, you have the effect where in in a religious environment that is supposed to be spiritually focused, community focused, where the focus is not supposed to be on bodies, like ironically, the focus becomes on bodies and how to guard them, how to make sure that your body is not seen, is not loud, is not distracting does not cause males to sin um, and you know there there is some some work that suggests that that could have negative impact on on a, a woman's a, a woman and girl's view toward her own body um, as seen through body image dissatisfaction which is very highly correlated with uh, eating disorders disordered eating um, which can be life-threatening Right, right. And um, Goldie, um, how effective do you think this strategy of the of the um, the Tzniyas, uh diagrams and more generally this focus on um, uh, kind of intense focus of uh, um, quote unquote modesty as it relates to a girls and women's dress? Um, I think effectiveness is is hard to quantify. Um... I think that we found in the article um, they're probably doing more harm than good um, just by erasing so many details and 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 sort of um, making making it seem that women are responsible for for a man's thoughts and actions. Um, so we think that they are more counterproductive. Um, more, more counterproductive. Um, I hear you. Okay. Um, well, it certainly um, gives us gives us a lot to think about. Um, okay, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, Hannah, are you with us? I am here. Terrific. Okay, so we want to ask you some questions about your um, your essay uh, in the volume. So. Um, you wrote about the music produced by A.B. Rottenberg. Uh, who is A.B. Rottenberg, and are there basic features that stand out about his music? Um, sure. So as I mentioned in the beginning, I grew up in what might be considered a sort of a mixed socialization. So I grew up in uh, an out-of-town community, which Janie mentioned, which is a place outside of the tri-state area. Um, which I think actually sometimes gets an incorrect understanding at times, nothing to do with what Danny mentioned, but um, because there is a, because the communities tend to be smaller, there is a different kind of mixture of uh, values and expectations that occurs there. In some ways, the um, religious intensity, for lack of a better word, might be um, less, 
significant for it within the young childhood socialization. For example, it's very unlikely that a child will get kicked out of school for something like not wearing the right clothing or wearing a backpack incorrectly or um, something small like that. On the other hand, if a family does consider themselves to be ultra-Orthodox within the quote unquote, like out of town community, there's actually a more significant amount of leverage placed upon them as sort of these exemplars of religious behavior. So when I was growing up within one of these families that was considered an exemplar, I, for example, did not have the ability to, you know, go with the flow or be in a broader school of fish, for lack of a better terminology here, um, wherein I didn't, you know, think about wearing tights or listening to non-Jewish music or whether I was going to marry someone in Kolel. These were things I had to constantly explain, give proof for, give reasoning for, and which in my Chabad education, I was taught not only to internalize, but also to be able to teach. So I was basically being taught to be what we would call an, an emissary of the Rebbe or a shliach or a shlecha of the Rebbe from uh, the great seventh Lubavitch Rebbe from a very young age. Um, so I did not get a socialization wherein it was only that I should be internally very holy, but that I should be geared towards this ability to give over to others. Um, so within this ecosystem, I both got a very um, Lubavitch Hasidic education, but then in my home was socialized through artifacts of a more yeshivish household, which included things like A.B. Rottenberg's music, um, which actually he began to produce well before I was born uh, in the 90s, in the late 70s, early 80s, he began to produce this specific version of Jewish music, which was not uh, like Country Yassi. It did not parody non-Jewish music. It actually built on this uh, much older version of Jewish music, which was like this melodic, um, you know, almost building on the chazanas, the, um, uh, the, um, the, the leader... Yeah, uh, there you go. But it, it, cantorial. It's, yes, but but cantorial, not just in the sense. I don't just mean in the sense that it's given over in a synagogue setting, um, but that it's built out of these phrases from within the Torah, from within the davening, from within the prayer. That that's what carries the melody. That's what carries, and your ability to associate with the meaning of that because you've been a learned Jewish ultra orthodox child um, leads you to feel the meaning within that melody. Right, so. You connect with the story, you connect with the words because you've learned them, because you know where that um, phrase from the Psalms comes from, right? You know what it's supposed to mean to you. And that's why the melody counts or that's why the storytelling effort works. So he began with a series of mostly just Hebrew CDs. Um, and then he broke into this world of more specifically um child and family oriented, and then it became fully child oriented in the Marvelous Mitos machine. But this child and family oriented storytelling where he took um, not just parables in Jewish tales and sort of Jewish folklore, but everyday um, Jewish dilemmas or everyday situations within the socialization of the Orthodox world um, and sang about them and spoke about them. And as a child growing up in one of these exemplar families in this community, I very much resonated with these stories. I very much resonated with these songs because they felt like the authentic Judaism I was being socialized and cultivated to not only experience, but to give over. 
Um, and so, you know, I was sort of ex expected as a child and I have uh, five older siblings and one younger sibling. And specifically within those five older siblings, I have four older brothers who all went to yeshiva out of town, i.e. not within the, uh, the community that I was in, but out of our community to go to a, quote, real yeshiva, right, to be embedded in the more authentic Jewish uh, yeshivish experience. And I looked to them with a lot of uh, jealousy. I also wanted to be authentically Jewish. I also wanted to be authentically within this more religious structure that I was being raised to um, to dedicate my life to. So that's why these songs were so significant to me. Um, my brothers would sometimes bring home a new CD when they came home from yeshiva. And so this was sort of our connection to this world as this family that was expected as an exemplar to embody this at all times. Right. And what picture of Orthodox Jewish life did Rottenberg's journeys, this uh, a set of, of, of CDs of, uh, with um, uh, songs, uh, what uh, picture of Orthodox Jewish life did Rottenberg's journeys, um, uh, the songs of, uh, um, in these CDs, represent for you? So, so I think, so I titled the piece journeys and I, I think that it is essentially, it was essentially supposed to be a journey, right? That within each of these songs, there is some sort of dilemma. There is some sort of concern you're supposed to have or a frustration you're supposed to have. Um, there's a feeling of, of uncertainty that you're allowed to engage in. But by the end of the song, there's this completion. There's this sort of idea where, well, but now we've gotten there because actually within orthodoxy, we have everything. You just need to uncover it. You need to find it. You need to work through it, but it's actually all there and you are safe here. And this is a wonderful place because even though sometimes it's rough around the edges or sometimes we battle to get in or to get out or to figure out how these mechanisms work, really everything is there. Um, and the song always ends on this sense of, you know, really, we, we got it we make sense, we, we have everything. And especially as a child, that's a very comforting idea. Um, it doesn't underestimate your ability as a child to recognize that there's tension in the world, right? He doesn't underestimate, especially the child listener. In fact, he engages directly with the fact that there's tension and there's uncertainty. But by the end of the song, you feel like it's going to be okay, right? Even a Jewish mother who hates preparing for Passover, um, who hates doing all the cleaning, right? By the end of the song, um, it's a it's a male who sings it, which we can get into all the gender dynamics of that uh, too. But at the end of the song, the this um, woman says that she really does appreciate being able to do this because it's a service to the religion and to the experience and to the socialization. So that's I think a key component is there is a struggle, but there is sort of this conclusion where everything's good here. Right, and then you talk about how. Uh, I, um, at one point after you were finishing high school, you went to um, to attend a girls' seminary in Israel, and then later you moved to one of the major hubs of Orthodox Jewish life in New York. Um, what happened to the image of Orthodox Judaism that was uh, personified, represented by the, the songs from uh uh, Rottenberg that you came to to know and love so much. What happened to that uh, image of Orthodox Judaism when you became uh, when you you sort of confronted um, more um, um, kind of uh, major Jewish communities that you were suddenly a part of? 
Yeah. So going back to what I mentioned earlier about uh, being more of a social scientist than a Jewish studies scholar, I wrote this piece to be autoethnographic. And what I mean by that is I wanted to study the culture that I am a part of. And one of the key ways to do um, ethnographic and autoethnographic work is to pay attention to what we call the measures of the ordinary. And so those are spatiality or like actual, you know, distance, physical space, geographic space, things like that, um, temporality. So the elements of time and relationality, the fact that you don't experience anything in a bubble, no one experiences anything in a bubble, there are always relationships involved. So what I really tried to do with this piece was to use A.B. Rottenberg's journeys, again, you know, using this, this idea of a journey to speak to the spatiality, temporality and relationality, the, the social elements of Orthodox Jewish life and of Orthodox Jewish social, socialization. Uh, key here, I think, in, in your question is that there is a time element to Orthodox Jewish childhood, which is to say that it ends and your Orthodox Jewish childhood is expected to transition into an Orthodox Jewish young adulthood and then complete adulthood and then the giving over of an Orthodox Jewish childhood to your own children. And what I wanted to do with the piece was to walk through each one of those steps with A.B. Rottenberg, with the Journey CDs, and to note that there was a point in my life where I transitioned from my Orthodox Jewish childhood in both a temp- temporal element, right? I physically was no longer a child or I, I moved through time, but also I moved through space. I went to Israel and then I went to um, New York City to to be amongst, you know, the, the Haredi Orthodox Jewish community, quote, in town, right, in the tri-state area. Um, I also lived in Lakewood for a time on and off. And so I... I wanted to highlight that when I was actually physically in those spaces and dealing with this temporal element of going from or from a childhood to a young adulthood, I actually found the Rottenberg CDs to be um, un, uh, like just incorrect. Um, I found them to be un, like not useful. Uh, and then at some point I found them to be harmful to me, that they continued to present a reality that I could not find. And that felt that either I was making mistakes in how I was trying to approach Judaism or that this Orthodox Judaism that he presented to the childhood version of me did not exist. And that was actually really, again, looking at this from an autoethnographic lens, that was sort of a breakdown for me where when I was in a specific time and place, I believed something to be so real and I believed it to be real specifically because I didn't see it. Right. I thought, oh, it's not here because it exists somewhere else. But then when I got to that place and it didn't exist there either, I had to then question whether it exists at all. And in that at that point, I couldn't then say, well, maybe it existed somewhere else because I had been in that other place. Right. What was it that you felt didn't exist? What 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 were you confronted with? I mean, what was the actual sure, substance? Yeah. Yeah, so what I was confronted with was a world that actually seemed highly unintentional. And I think the storytelling of Rottenberg is that there's this intentionality to the Orthodox community that sort of self-corrects. If you think of it as a thermometer, um, I live in very hot Dallas, Texas. And so there's a thermometer in my home that I set to a certain degree point. And when it's hotter, it has to blow harder, right? The air conditioning has to blow hotter. And when it's not as hot, the air conditioning doesn't blow as hard because it has to stay at that temperature. And A.B. Rottenberg's music presents this version of orthodoxy, which I mentioned, you know, there's this tension point, but then there's this fix, right? That there's this te- there's this thermometer going on. You will always reach 70 degrees. You will be comfortable. You will be fine. Someday 
days it'll be really hot and we'll have to blow harder and we'll have to work through it, but you'll get back to 70 degrees. And what I found was that there was very little intentionality that I could find that was going to bring me back to 70 degrees or bring anybody back to 70 degrees. And in fact, when these tension points were reached, um, you know, I, I was, for example, in the matchmaking system, in the shidduch system, trying to, you know, get married. Uh, which I did still relatively young, but I was trying to work through this with these tools that I believed AB was giving me of this belief that we were going to go back to 70 degrees and finding that in fact, I wasn't going to. And if I had questions about, well, I want to do this in my life, but surely he'll balance this out and it'll all work. I was being told, no, you actually have to not pursue your life because he's not, that person isn't going to exist, right? Things like that, where there isn't actually this self-correcting system that in fact, especially as women, we have to be the self-correcting system and there is no correction built in. Um, And in fact, there's a lot of um, danger, there's despair, there's calamity, right? There are these actual major issues that we haven't fixed, we haven't resolved, and it's not self-correcting at all. Right. So given um, everything that you said, essentially your kind of disappointment uh, 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 with the Rottenberg um, um, songs and their messaging, I'm curious, you end off your essay by writing that you've arranged that your children now listen to Rottenberg's uh, uh, music. Why? So so I I think that that was actually, um, you know, sometimes when we write um, as social scientists, um, as autoethnographers, we we are writing, we are also coming to findings ourselves, right? We're not writing personal narratives where we know the ending. We're opening ourselves up to new findings. And I didn't realize when I first started out this essay, and Danny knows from the prior versions that I had submitted um, or the prior thoughts that I had, I didn't realize that I was going to end off with this. Um, But actually, uh, interestingly enough, as I started working on this piece, uh, that's actually when my kids hit an age where they sort of needed more Jewish music in their life. Um, typically, we do play a lot of uh, nigunim or Hasidic melodies in our home, and I felt like my children needed something more secular that they could relate to and sing as well, but also not something that was going to be entirely pop non-Jewish music, which I personally don't like and don't see any usefulness for my kids. Um, and so... I I actually came back to these CDs. And I think that for me, the realization, again, thinking of the spatiality, temporality and relationality was that I'm now at a point in my life where I am very distant from that major hub of Orthodox Jewish life of the New York area. So spatially, I'm away from a lot of that. I've now grown into an adult. I am confident in my relationship with Judaism and in my just general kind of relationships. And I'm now at a point where I'm okay with introducing these to foster a conversation where I'm sort of doing a tikkun, I'm sort of doing a repair for my kids where I'm introducing this intentional self-correcting orthodox system, but with the knowledge that it doesn't exist to then create conversations with them where they they can approach orthodox Judaism by recognizing that there is this happy way that all kids deserve to know the world exists. Kids deserve, and in fact, a lot of what we think about in terms of um, negative uh, childhood experiences, right, are children who don't get the opportunity to uh, to engage with the with a world that's whole, right? That's a negative. That's an adverse childhood experience. Child, good childhood experiences are childhood experiences in which they engage with a whole universe, right? And so 
I want to give my kids that. I want to give them a sense that the universe that they're in is whole as well and self-correcting. But I also want to do so now with the tools where when they notice a lack of intentionality, we can talk about that and they can come and talk to me about it and they can talk to others about it um, because they're going to realize that in any world. So, um, yeah. And actually, Dani, uh, with the help of this book, it really helped me to start having that conversation with myself, too. So it was a little self-correcting on my end. There was a little tikkun there on my end. That, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for all of that. Uh, we're going to shift gears again to Miriam. Uh, Miriam, you also wrote about music, and uh, you wrote uh, about how ultra-Orthodox music is a mix of traditional elements along with more modern ones, often incorporating or mimicking aspects of non-Jewish music. Could you expand on that, please? Yeah, sure. So this was from just a quick literature review that I had done when I decided to write about Hanukkah music. And I was curious to see what other academics might have written about music. Um, And that's where you actually see the literature where it talks about um, the kind of like movement you see between the religious world and and the outside world that you see in the music, where you see them borrowing tunes, borrowing trends, borrowing styles. So that's where you actually see a bit of the literature that discusses that um, in general in the academic world. Right. And and you, you also wrote that um, ultra-Orthodox English language songs often mix in Yiddish or Hebrew words. Can you give us an example of this at work uh, using the Miami Boys Choir song, We Need You? Yeah. So that's one that I talk about in the piece. It's an, like an interesting contrast to um, the Hanukkah music that I was talking about, where you often see English language music with pure English language within the songs. But in general, in Haredi music, you find that there's this blend, this blend of jargon. So in We Need You, it's a song about the need for people to pray to God, to daven to Hashem. And in that in that song, in their chorus, they say, we need you, we need your tefillos, we need your prayers, but Hebrew tefillos. Um each and every Yid, each and every Jewish person, Yid is Yiddish, can bring the Geula. The Geula is Mashiach, Messiah, redemption. But again, a Hebrew word that's more commonly used in the Haredi world. And what was interesting to me is how that stands in contrast to the word prayer, the English word that's used in a lot of the Hanukkah music that re- that reference praying. They don't say the word tefillah. They don't say the word that's, you know, the Hebrew. They don't use the word daven, the Yiddish, but they'll use the word pray, the English. Um and, and to me, that signified that it's appealing to a slightly different audience, a slightly different demographic, because when it's completely inward focused, the songs will use the jargon and they'll be written in the way that Haredim usually speak with Yiddish, with Hebrew, you know, especially for words that have to do with rituals, observances, beliefs. Right, right. And um, what messages do you see present in the ultra-Orthodox pop songs related to Hanukkah that you look at? Yeah, so related to Hanukkah, what I found is that um, a lot of them seem to be directed both inward and outward in contrast to Haredi music that typically is directed inward toward the community for consumption. And it had, it seemed to have more of a cure focus, like an outreach focus, an intention to loop people in and bring people closer to a Haredi way of life. And you see that in the themes of the songs, like there's the song about uh, a secularized family, an assimilated family that lights Hanukkah candles. Um, and, And the reason this happened was because the child in the family had been asking his father to set up a Christmas tree 
like the neighbors had set up and the father's awakened to his Jewish heritage. And he's he, like, that's a line he won't cross. So he lights the Hanukkah candles and it kind of like brings them back home. It brings the family back home, but not only that, like back, back to their Jewish roots, it also awakens the rest of their neighborhood, the rest of their block. And suddenly they're looking out the window and they see the houses, their neighboring houses have lit menorahs too. The neighbors that they thought were Christians and that had Christmas trees were lighting their menorahs too, because that spark awakened something in them, that lighting of the menorah awakened something in them that brought them back to their heritage. And you see that in other songs too, that these Hanukkah songs um, have messaging about Kirov and seem to be being used as a vehicle for Kirov as well. Kirov meaning um, inreach, bringing people inward, outreach, you know, bringing people from the outside closer to a Haredi way of life. Right. So ultra-Orthodox Jews who are trying to encourage other Jews who are not uh, uh, Orthodox to become more uh, Orthodox, uh, more observant in an Orthodox way. Exactly. And it's still, and I would say in reach too, because it's still aimed at a Haredi audience as well. Like these are part of their albums that are geared toward Haredim. So sometimes it's hard to tell, are they writing these songs for outsiders to listen to and be awakened to Judaism? Or are they writing them for insiders to listen to? to sort of validate their own belief system that other people are awakened to their way of life. You know, it's very validating to feel that other people see your way of life and find it inspiring and find that it gives meaning and then come to your way of life because that's the meaningful one. That's the true one. Right. Regardless of how many people are actually coming over, just this idea that there are all these people from the outside, the non-Orthodox Jewish community, who are going to suddenly embrace a more Orthodox way of life that could be kind of reaffirming for members of the Orthodox community itself. Exactly. And arguably, you could say that's a a function of Kirov, too, that a function of Kirov is not purely... Um, to bring people from the outside in, but it's a way of validating their own belief system by being able to tell these narratives of people from the outside coming to their way of life. Right. And there certainly are books um, written or articles written by people who were kind of mini celebrities or had some um, uh, you know, prestigious position outside the Orthodox uh, Jewish world and then embraced Orthodox Judaism. And they're looked at as basically, uh, you know, to say, hey, this person was a big shot outside the community and then they joined us. So like, obviously, we, the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox community are obviously on the right track because we attracted such a, you know, wonderful person from outside our ranks. Exactly. You see this a lot in the high schools um, as well, where they'll bring in cure personalities to speak to the kids. And that's also a time when kids in adolescence can start questioning and bringing in these people either who have left, I'm sorry, not have left, who have, who have been raised outside of their world, but chosen to adopt a Haredi way of life, or people who are cure of professionals who work with people to bring them back to orthodoxy or from a secular life into orthodoxy, though they had never experienced it before. Um, So I think it's interesting and telling that you see these people talking to kids at this formative stage in their life, in in their adolescence, and that's their way of validating the faith. It's It's not necessarily through proofs. It's often through these kinds of narratives like the one you gave. I mean, I remember this from when I was a teenager. We had one cure personality who came, like, I think it was like in the name of, he's going to prove to you, he's going to answer all your questions. And in the end, it ended up being a slew of narratives. Like the one you said, I spoke to this guy and I made him from, he was like, I don't remember, like a Hollywood personality. And I made him from, it was like a slew of narratives like that. And that was supposed to be validating the fact that other people find truth in what you're living already. Right. And from is orthodox is a kind of orthodox or ultra orthodox term of, uh, uh, for 
being part of the Orthodox community. Um, right. So, okay, last question. And I, I, I really um, enjoyed reading all of the essays in the book. And I really enjoyed thinking about uh, Hannah's um, uh, reflections on the journey's uh, songs and whether or not she should share them with her with her children and connecting that with uh, Miriam with your uh, take on this and I I thought that was really interesting when you wrote that um, often the ultra orthodox community is concerned about. Uh, um, uh, consuming non-Orthodox music, and especially for their children, consuming it, that they feel that this could be uh, morally or spiritually um, uh, 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 counterproductive. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, you, you, you raised the issue about what happens for someone who grew up in the ultra-Orthodox community and then is no longer a part of it. How should they feel about sharing the music of that community with their children who are not living an ultra-Orthodox um, uh, life? And how did you uh, think about that? Yeah, so that's something I'm constantly grappling with. It's very nostalgic for me. I do love the music. I think um, listening to other kinds of Jewish music doesn't feel authentic. And authentic, that's a complicated word, um, but just because that's the music of my own upbringing. So that's what I associate with the holidays. Um, and it's funny because like even the, the, the newer tunes or the newer CDs, if I were to listen to those, I wouldn't relate to them in the same way as if I were playing for my kids the songs that I actually grew up with. Um, so, so even there, there's a bit of that rupture for me. But that's a big part of it, the feeling, the semblance of authenticity, because I, like, I don't think we have a claim to authenticity in music over other traditions, especially since like going back to what you started with, um, even a lot of Haredi music is borrowed. The tunes are borrowed. This is what Dani was talking about in the, in the beginning also, right? The techno that you see in, what was it, the Chavra you were talking about, right? Very much borrowed. And yet it feels authentic when you're in the Haredi world and you're growing up with that. If you're in a community that allows that kind of music, of course, there was a lot of debate around it. So, um, but yeah, that that's definitely part of it. Like it feels authentic. It's, it's the music I associate with the different holidays. Um, what's funny is now on Echo, you know, the Amazon Echo, you can actually play these this music. You don't even you don't need CDs anymore. You can just tell Echo to play the songs as you get closer to the holidays. You can set your playlist. It'll play Uncle Maishi. I play that for my kids on Echo sometimes too. So I think it's also part of it is also the accessibility that made it so easy to pass this on to my kids without going out of my way to find the specific songs. It's just like it's in my home already. It's on that little device, you know. So the accessibility was also a big part of it, which I don't write about, but. I'm going to be honest about all the pieces. That's definitely a part of it. Um, but then at the same time, like I'm listening to the songs and I, I do have to wonder, like, is there anything that I that I'm uncomfortable with in this music? And it's something that I'm I'm constantly thinking about. Like, is there any part of this that I'd be uncomfortable passing on to my kids? Is there messaging that I'm uncomfortable with? Is there messaging that's inappropriate? You know, um, in the Haredi world, inappropriate is anything that's not Haredi, that's opposed to their lifestyle, but there are things in the Haredi world that I find inappropriate in their worldview. So is that coming through in their music? It's something that's always on my mind and I have to be looking out for. Like, how how do they talk about the non-Jew? Does that come up in their music? Do I want my children hearing the non-Haredi denigrated if that's coming through in the music? You know, so that's definitely a part of it that's on my mind. And it's, you know, I think like a lot of the songs feel more innocuous and just traditional. And those are the ones that I'm bringing into my home. 
Right, right, right. Um, well, obviously, there's so much more to explore here. We're going to have to leave it there, except uh, we have the last question for Dani. I'm wondering, what do you hope the readers of your edited volume will take away from it? Uh, the main thing I hope people take away from this is that Orthodox childhood, while it is two things, that it is unique and, uh, and varied, and that it also is actually not all that different from other childhoods. There's a, there's a real kind of attitude toward Orthodox people, and it's kind of uh, ramping up a little bit with, you know, we see, we're seeing more attacks on visibly Orthodox-looking people. Um, there's this idea that Orthodox people are very different. Um, and that's not entirely true. They are, the Orthodox communities are very different from more mainstream communities in the fact that they are closed communities. But a lot of the things that children experience and that adolescents experience in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox communities, um, do cross boundaries. And what I hope happens here is that there is more of an interest in thinking about Orthodox childhoods um, and thinking about these kinds of artifacts. One of the things that happened was, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an essay on, the, on toy production. Um, and that has generated some online discussion about other, to- other toys that were made for Orthodox communities and how that overlaps with some, you know, some of the mainstream toys and the, the considerations and, and, you know, the actual technical aspects of that. And then also there's some overlap with some, you know, really Christian communities and how they're developing toys and, and the books and the music. There's a lot of overlap here. Um, so what I hope for this edited volume is, first of all, that people get have an awareness of this. And we have seen that um, in some of the responses to this book. People have been saying, like, I never thought about it that way. Um, and I think... I mean, books exist about Orthodox childhoods. You know, anthropologists like Ayala Fader have written about Orthodox childhoods. Um, but what I think is this, is, this is really more accessible to a non-academic audience. And that's kind of what my point was, to kind of gain an awareness of how important this field is. And, and specifically, my goal in all of this is kind of thinking about the real people that grew up or are growing up with these things. Right. Well, um, thank you all for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much for having us here, Zalman. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.